0: Hello, and welcome to Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Tom Walton Pocock, managing founder of Geometry. Building on his experience as a co-founder and CEO of the Aztec Network, Tom launched Geometry on the premise that deeply technical founders need investors who can relate to their engineering-first approach to business building. Geometry is now a leading cryptography and mathematics research firm with a track record of successful early-stage blockchain venture deals. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senior's Capital Management. All views expressed
1: by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senior Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as
0: an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello and welcome to the senior Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. Today's guest is calling in from the UK and we are delighted to have Tom Walpo of Geometry. How's it going, Tom? Thanks for having me, Ben. Very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Where exactly are you calling
1: in from? So I'm calling in from a small city an hour south of London, but London is definitely the, is where, where geometry has, I guess, sort of the most people, but we are, we're pretty, pretty sprinkled all over the world from SF, New York, right across to, to
0: Singapore. So yeah, most of my work's done from here. Great. Well, I, we have a lot we want to jump into today. Talk about your background, geometry, and then your perspective on a number of deeply technical topics that we haven't really touched on yet at senior studio. But before we get into that, I know that your background is actually in music. And so I wanted to hear a little bit about that and then maybe how you've drawn parallels from your music background and, and skills to your current work in crypto.
1: It's yeah, so I really do want to overstate the music thing this was a best a glancing blow it was a it was a very brief stint and it's a really I'm really my my background a, a kind of undergraduate was in in maths and then I ended up doing some singing and then that became a bit more serious and I took it seriously for us so six nine months and the market spoke I was all, one of those lucky people I think it's an awful midway where if you are talented but not hyper talented you might still go after the music and I was fortunate to be below that that rung and the market spoke pretty quickly and so I was never never put in any kind of there was never a question am I going to be threatening anyone's jobs at Covent Garden or the Metropolitan Opera or whatever so so I feel like I I had it easy. Maybe there's a there's an element of, of overlap between the experience of being a being a singer and an entrepreneur, I guess, in terms of mentality and sort of battle resilience and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I think they're, they're they're probably pretty, pretty minimal.
0: Got it. Well, I'd love to touch on your background and experiences, both from where you went to college, grew up, but then how all of that led to your current work and the formation of geometry.
1: Yeah. So I grew up on a wee island called Jersey, The name that will be familiar to you, but this is old Jersey. After which New Jersey was named. It's a tiny little lump of granite floating in the English Channel. It's a lovely place, and it's kind of between the UK and France. Maybe sort of what typified the existence there was, you were always sort of slightly less well connected to the world. The internet started coming online. I guess we were probably always very slightly behind, and so maybe sort of information flows were sort of slightly less good there at the time. I went to university in Cambridge in the UK. Uh, I studied uh, maths at undergraduate and then postgraduate. And there's this kind of, I still have my postgrad photo on my wall. It's kind of amazing how many people in there are now actually leading pretty major projects, including Ethereum and WorldCoin and various other really important pieces of research-driven infrastructure. Maybe it's not, not a surprise. There's lots of mathematicians in a room, basically. This is a very brief stint in music, a bit of time in finance, and then founded a company, co-founded a company called Aztec, which is a layer two network. So this is kind of one of these companies that is scaling Ethereum. I guess we're going to talk a little bit about scaling during the course of this podcast. And it's done a lot of the work to create the sort of the cryptographic tricks that enable you to make these systems faster without imperiling their decentralization so this new kind of hard consensus substrate which is going to be the basis i think for all future computation you need to make sure that that it remains hard and that it remains fully decentralized and it was an encryption trick that was created i say it was a trick it was a a really impressive piece of work not done by me but by my co-founder zach williamson and our chief scientist Ariel Gabson that I think is now forming the basis of a lot of the scaling that Ethereum is now able to enjoy. And we can chat about that maybe later on. And as far as geometry is concerned, geometry arose really sort of not long after I left Aztec. I co-founded this with Kobe Gherkin, and we wanted geometry to be a new flavor of Investor. So it would be a research-driven company first. So we do a lot of work in applied cryptography, these things, zero-knowledge proofs, which we can also touch on later on, and we also use that as a mechanism by which to invest. So it sort of acts as a way to generate inbound traffic that allows geometry to invest and justify the higher cost
0: of operating uh, geometry as a fund. What was the gap in the market that you identified that you thought, given your experience at Aztec and where you thought there was opportunity, how you thought it made sense to form this research-driven investment fund. Yeah.
1: So I guess there's the two, could break it into two questions. One is sort of why that particular interest, and the second is sort of why a research fund at all? I think sort of, maybe, maybe answer the why a research fund. I, I noticed a lot of the time that when deeply technical companies were looking to raise money, They were struggling to form a rapport with the investor who, you know, I guess suffered from a sort of a lack of deeply technical understanding of the company. There was therefore maybe a lack of empathy between the investor and the company. And the investor then typically went where the most technical people were. And I think, you know, investors, they're constantly trying to work out how can we justify our position in an increasingly heated investment environment how can we sort of justify why we should be on the cap table rather than someone else and a lot of the time you know what investment funds maybe make promises oh we'll make introductions to other people in our portfolio i think that can work for very powerful investors but otherwise i think you you just need a usb and then the sort of question of why particularly did we pick zero knowledge proofs and cryptography really this sounds like a very narrow interest but actually it's likely to devour all computation on this future internet which we are building. The zero-knowledge proof basically is, sits at the at the corner of everything that you are going to want to do on this new decentralized verified internet that we are now piling into. And so it's a kind of it's a very universal thing to be interested in because ultimately every time you want to interact with this internet there will be this thing as zero-knowledge proof that is created, executed, verified. And so it really allows you to sort of to see a very wide section of this future market. And so we felt that from a strategic perspective, it's a great place to start. And then I think also it was the commonality between me and Kobe. It was the thing that sort of, I guess, united our interests and seemed like a very natural place to start. And we still wanted to keep really closely for real, for not just investment reasons, but for reasons of intellectual interest. This is one of the most fertile areas of intellectual output that I you know, obviously we're 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 very parochial and the way we think about this is is we breathe and eat and this stuff and we spend a lot of time in it. But I really think this has been one of the most sort of fertile periods in the advance of computation sort of through history. There have been you know several of these, but I think this really has that level of importance. And so we wanted to stay close to the research.
0: I wanted to double-click on your comment about founders with deeply technical backgrounds. What do you find most investment firms aren't able to understand about these founders and how does geometry work to solve that and ensure that these deeply technical founders who may not have traditional business experience, that they're able to launch a successful business protocol, etc.? Yeah, so I think
1: I think it basically boils down to what motivates the founder. So, you know, it it's a very hackneyed thing to kind of to comb back over history and pick out the Steve Jobs and the the Bezos and all these wonderful founders. And the thing that very clearly unites them is an utter obsession over the user and the ease of use and addressing the mainstream user as much as they can it could be said that the competition or the computer industry grew up on a diet of hobbyists basically financing these companies to be able to care about some mainstream user that could exist but thereafter it was all about sort of the mainstream user and caring a lot about them the interesting thing i think that possibly plagues deep tech founders is they come in with a first a passion for the intellectual stuff so they've come straight up possibly out of university department they may have worked at some deep tech stuff before but it usually will have been at the, the cutting edge of the research, not necessarily having to do that sort of existential problem of how do we actually find a real user? And you could say that crypto in, in its entirety has been plagued by the fact that it is amazing economics meets amazing mathematics, and it's really struggled to find a, I would argue, a sort of a, a, a long-term user so far. It's it's been built up on a diet of hobbyists. Those hobbies actually have largely been financially driven so far, and it's now really seeking its long-term end user. So the trouble is someone comes in and they say, we've got this great thing, MPC, multi-party computation, we've got this great thing, homomorphic encryption, or this great thing, zero-knowledge proofs, or whatever it might be. And so they end up, instead of it being a light bulb moment, ah, oh, this user needs this, where's the technology? It tends to be I've got this amazing thing, my old accelerator used to call it the orb, this magical piece of technology that animates them and animates all their friends. And then they spend years, and as arguably, I think Aztec did for a while, and we we definitely wrestled with this, you have this magic thing. What does the magic thing do for the user? And so the one thing we always make sure that we do is try to find somewhere in the DNA of at least one of the founders there is that obsessive impulse over an, over a future end user, even if the end user is at the moment possibly ill-defined, possibly too general. We always try to make sure that they have the capacity to care about an end user, so that when that, ha- when that, that sort of phase change happens in the company, it, research, 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 product, the product bit is going to take over, and the product is not going to be hamstrung by the desires of the rest of the founding team to essentially run
0: a faculty and not a business. So what does running a research-driven VC fund mean in practice for those founders that you just referenced? How are you supporting them both in terms of developing the orb, but then also bringing that orb and developing a commercial purpose around it? Yes, yeah, so we've had so, several several ways. First of all, we, very often we end up
1: doing research collaborations before we invest in a company. Often, actually, that's, that's at least on occasion, that's how the relationship is built. We often do we support the technical part of the founding team with some of the R D breakthroughs they need to make. I think sort of a notable one lately has been a Nico Monblatt's work on Sangria, which is basically a way to make these proofs even faster. We can go into more detail, but it's it's basically a sort of in some ways it's a recapitulation of the things we've been doing before but at a kind of different layer of the of the the, the cryptographic stack and so we we have that sort of very pure research driven interaction and i'd say probably what i bring to the team more is someone who has sort of carried the existential dread for 3 4 years sort of worked out how to make the horse lead the cart so i spend a lot more time sort of trying to work on the the joinery of the business to the encryption system or the business, to so this this new this new widget, and try to draw out a definition of that first user. Which very often, because the R and D looks like such hell, it's such an uphill struggle, and there's so much to do, and there's so much performance gains to make. Very often, that can get that can get lost in the discussion. So I think that's where the team is quite well balanced to help on both sides.
0: What are Thinking through the successful projects over the last three, four years, a lot of them have been token incentive driven and just playing financial games. What are the business models that you have conviction in that can be applied to these more technical protocols that are being developed that you guys are backing at geometry? What are like, I guess a couple different examples of which this deeply technical work can be monetized and developed into a real business yeah okay
1: so the funny thing about a lot of these protocols and the development of cryptography is it takes a lot of the what might call it? so the residues of trust which actually you often look for in a business to be able to justify your ability to charge for it You right. into the whole thing about stickiness is i can charge you more if it's much harder for you to to leave me or or if i can or if some actor could do something bad to your information. So if I'm Oracle, I could forget all the information you have stored in, in my database, or I could mutate it, right? So you're prepared to pay Oracle for a whole load of services, but one of the core services is please don't screw up. And that please don't screw up-ism is kind of extracted from the risks of doing stuff on Web3. Web3, actually, its whole mission has been about try to reduce the dependencies on centralized people, which is also structurally not always great for the business model. So again, that's what we look for. Where are the trust residues likely to be still left after this amazing work has been done? So maybe some good examples. So First of all, I'm probably a believer that there is some small clutch of Protocol attached tokens that can have value without cash flow, and I think the reason is they are striving for candidacy as a macro asset. They want to be a store of value asset that can be considered alongside gold or currencies or whatever. And so, sort of let's say Bitcoin, Ether, and maybe there's a couple of other sort of canonical layer one assets that can make this claim. So they can basically become money like. They can essentially sit at a crazily elevated cash multiple. And that's fine, because the world has agreed that they're a store of value. It still leaves an article of faith at the base of this thing, but that's fine. So then there's the what we call the Layer 2 network. So this has been, and we, maybe we should also talk about sort of structurally how Ethereum is scaling differently to other, other networks, we and we can do that. But there's this thing called the Layer 2 network, which is essentially, it borrows off the security of Ethereum. So it kind of, in the long run, it is as secure as Ethereum. There's some stuff that it's allowed to do to kind of make transaction volumes faster and increase the amount of computation that Ethereum actually can host. And these Layer 2 networks have also had tokens attached to them. Now, I think the jury is really out on whether they can, those tokens, have a future claim to cash flow. There are kind of two things to examine here. One is, is there a mechanism by which they can extract cash? And that brings in a whole load of questions like, well, for a regulatory standpoint, Is this a security or does it get classed as a royalty and somehow it kind of sits outside that framework? Does it need to generate cash? My view is probably it does. I'm not sure that the layer two has quite the canonical role in the world that it does at a layer one. You know, Ether has a very sort of central position to the entire financial machinery of Ethereum. Can the same be said for a layer two token? Not sure. But there are a lot of people sitting around the layer two network who will help it to operate where there are going to be these trust relationships and there are, there are going to be basically input costs that cannot go away to how they operate. So a good example is, I mean, we've with a company called Ingenyawa. There are several of these companies that are doing acceleration of the type of computation that is going to drive all of this future internet, basically putting together these things called zero-knowledge proofs. Like, basically it means any program that's going, going to go into the system, it has to go through this process of being turned into a succinct proof and the reason it has to be a threat process is that Ethereum can't check billions of transactions a second. But the succinct proofs are a way of relieving Ethereum of having to just check everything. It can just check something that allows it to know that it's all true without checking every single detail, right? So that means every piece of software, any code, anything will end up running through this zero knowledge proof creation system. And so there are particular hardware providers that very like the, sort of the the, you know, the CPU. We had the GPU, which focused just on sort of graphics. This thing called the ZPU or ZPU, which will just focus on the construction of this very important paradigm because it's going to be everywhere. It doesn't matter what code you're running, what computer program you're interacting with, you will need a conversion to a KP. So that's maybe a good example of where you have to follow the line of cash flow. You have to work out can the layer two make money. Don't know. Jury's out. The other thing about the layer 2 is it probably has to freeze up over time, which is kind of the opposite of what a company does. A company obviously needs to keep on innovating to drop its margin. These blockchain infrastructures have this interesting thing where the more money they host and the more people are relying on it, the less they can rebuild themselves in midair, right? Ethereum has just done this for arguably the last time. Further tweaks to Ethereum probably are now tweaks, And the layer twos might end up following that same pattern. And so that might further question, is there any impulse to extract cash? Is there any mechanism or desire to extract more than the cost of operation from the user and therefore be be a sort of a good return at the protocol level? But there's loads of businesses you can build around that, like hardware, possibly even software services that help engineers to maintain their software. Bear in mind, you know, if you're running smart contracts in the future, the threats around blockchain programs are potentially an order of magnitude higher than sort of classical programs or classical websites or whatever. And so the role of software that is constantly monitoring the threats for blockchain programs can probably extract a lot of value from engineering teams. So There's lots of opportunity. It probably creates a lot of opportunity, but it also deletes all business models. Of course, we've seen this with
0: tech lots of times, so it shouldn't necessarily surprise us. I think this is a good time to dive into the Merriam-Webster section of today's episode. So let's start with ZK Proof, just because that's a core tenet of Geometry's fun thesis and a lot of where the innovation is going towards right now. And it seems to be a key primitive that has unlocked the next wave for blockchains what is zk proof and what is the history of it because i find that fascinating and why is it important sure so ziki first of all the first moment you encounter this thing it seems
1: really unlikely unlike- that it that it exists it's a very odd thing so um what's what are we trying to do we're trying to allow ethereum let's say or some layer one blockchain to process tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of transactions all at the same time. You can't do it, right, because it only can run as fast as the slowest computer checking the system. So what the ZK proof enables for blockchains, and by the ZK proof is a bit of a misnomer, should really be called succinct proof, and the historical reasons why we use this bad word. Zero knowledge is a bit misleading. It's basically a way of taking a computation of which, let's say, a hundred million transactions, that would be a big computation, and instead of asking a node on the Ethereum network, like the ho- basically everyone participating in the Ethereum network to check this thing, you can do a much bigger amount of computation, and in in moral exchange for this big computation that it, that does this sort of big argument, produce a tiny proof that shows that those millions of transactions are all correct. Which is a crazy thing to say. So in other words, I can convince you that the, the result of a change in the, the information on Ethereum from one block to the next was authentically updated by, let's say, a million or 10 million or however many transactions, all compiled together, and you need to do no more work than it would cost you to check just a few transactions. Right? I can really get almost limitless scaling which is weird. now this sort of inherits from a body of work that started in the 1980s I actually explained this on another podcast I'll try to find another way to explain it but essentially maths had a bit of an existential crisis mathematics I should say or math I should say on, on this on this podcast it had an existential crisis so proofs in maths were getting really long people were having to f- sort of basically there was a one called the the four color theorem and which basically says that you can color any map in four colours, and it was impossible for mathematicians to check it was true, because it had been reduced to thousands of configurations, 500-page proof, so no one could check it, so this is really like a blockchain, blockchains have too much stuff to check, and so the maths community couldn't check these proofs, and this was a problem, and so this sort of kicked off a body of, of work at MIT, where they were trying to work out, is it actually possible to allow someone to verify that a computation has correctly happened and that there are no mistakes, but not actually have to look at the original computation. And this is kind of where it all arose from. Blockchain really gave the sort of the economic stimulus to that going from a sort of theoretically this is possible, who's ever going to use it, to an actual application. It actually arose first in the context of privacy. so. One thing maybe I've not explained on podcasts in the past, I think this is really interesting, privacy and scaling are really, really closely related phenomena. And here's why. If I want to do a private transaction, let's say on Ethereum, I do a ZK proof that means I want to show you the transaction was true, but I don't want to share the information with you. And the scaling setting says, I want to prove the transaction or a batch of transactions is true, but I don't want to have to send you all the information because you can't possibly check it all. Now, those are different motivations, but it's the same paradigm, the same, I'm not going to send you all the information, so that you. But, but I still want you to be able to verify it, right? So the same thing, the same kind of requ- mathematical requirement arises out of both privacy and scaling. We actually saw it in privacy first, 2013, Ccash, 2013, 2014, something like that. But it's actually now come to the rescue of things like Ethereum as a as a as a scaling mechanism. So yeah, these zk proofs, they're everywhere. They're really important, and uh, they are probably. I think without them, I don't know how we would have scaled Ethereum, and it had no chance of ever catching up with you know the surge capacity of Visa, which can do up to sixty seventy thousand transactions a second. We would have just now had no hope.
0: The close correlation of privacy and scaling is an interesting one. And so I'd like to make that tangible (laughs) via a number of the ZK EVM, Ethereum Virtual Machine, scaling solutions that are coming live now. We saw Polygon launch its ZK EVM, Scroll, and basically everything that's not built on uh, optimistic roll-up technology. Can you explain what... And maybe we use scroll as an example. What does scroll do? Why is it important? And what is the EVM component of it?
1: Yeah. So the, the way I tend to analogize this, this is like the uh, the kind of microchip semiconductor industry. So going back, going back a wee way. So sort of. So what have we started with? We started with this layer one. What What are the technologies it brought to us? It brought to us basically a new type of computational substance something let's say really hard and really immutable we've not had before and is going to become incredibly important in in the coming years and i'll explain why later on the show it carries with it it needs to carry with it an agreement on how you write computer programs so that's what a microchip does obviously it's it's got these kind of instructions to which every program you ever run microsoft word microsoft excel whatever it is everything everything is compiling down to that same set of a finite number of instructions. Often it's sort of, you know, a matter of a few dozen or a few hundred and every bit like an alphabet, every single computer program can be built out of those instructions. The EBM was the first such instruction set to appear on a blockchain as a way to codify all programs. Now, you know, a lot of people are not sure whether it's necessarily the best design. But, uh, you know, there was a whole lot of constraints they were, they were operating with at the time. But it's the it was the first one. And very like, you know, maybe sort of a good example is sort of, you know, JavaScript people sort of, like a lot of serious engineers who don't particularly like JavaScript, but it kind of, it was the sort of the, the go-to-market for browser programming. In a similar way, the evm has that role in blockchains it's still become really really important and you see now the evm everywhere on other layer ones etc so natural thing for layer 2 networks whose job was scaling ethereum was to say you know a lot of secure programs have already been written in this thing things like are they and make it out they're, they're all known to be secure when they're written in this ethereum script this is and uh, this ethereum sort of assembly set so we need to find a way to scale those exact programs which are already known to be secure or hev- they're very heavily battle-tested. They've carried billions of dollars. And so therefore, we need to fit this thing into a zero-knowledge proof so that we can now do lots and lots and lots of these same transactions in the same computing paradigm. At the layer two, and that's a, that's exactly as you say. It's what Scroll has done. It's what you know, ZK Sync has done. Is that they're taking this instruction set and they are putting it into zero knowledge proofs. Now it turns out that's a really hard thing to do, and unfortunately, there are one or two historical choices that were made in how the Ethereum virtual machine was designed. I won't go into all the details, but made them really bad for fitting inside zero knowledge proofs. But because when the Ethereum virtual machine was designed, no one realized zero knowledge proofs were the, were, were the great chariot coming to the rescue. They did some stuff around the design of the EVM that actually meant that when you had to put the EVM into zero-knowledge proofs to scale it, it actually took longer. It required more brain power to fit the Ethereum virtual machine into zero-knowledge proofs because no
0: one saw zero-knowledge proofs coming as a scaling solution. What does, what's the implication of zero-knowledge proofs and the launch of scroll for the end user? for example, like what, what benefits does all of this technology bring to the average person walking on the street who's interested in doing something on-chain?
1: So the short-term and the long-term. The short-term is it isn't going to make your transactions an order of magnitude cheaper because you are now basically having your transactions bundled up lots of other people's transactions and Ethereum just has to check one consolidated proof to know that all that batch of transactions was secure. Now, there's some reasons why, actually, you need to make some extra assumptions to get even better scaling, but that's the short short answer, is you just get cheaper transactions for the same stuff. But I think, by far and away, the more important thing is, this now opens up the basket of ways that engineers can innovate. So they can now build more complicated programs, because those more complicated programs were unaffordably expensive to run on Ethereum mainnet, and now they're about to get an order of magnitude cheaper. So the more interesting thing from the investment standpoint is what are now all of the programs that can now be built that couldn't be built for the user because they were too complex. A very simple example is something like an order book, an exchange, right? So that the the amount of sort of searching that needed to be done across all of the bids and asks in a kind of classical exchange environment with, with self-custody, that was way too complex to put onto a blockchain because it was just prohibitively expensive. And so that is maybe a good example of something that now can be built on EVM or some other computing paradigm because of zero-knowledge proofs that was prohibitively expensive. By the way, very interestingly, because it was prohibitively expensive, that's why we got Uniswap, right? We got something that was computationally simpler, and it was really like this sort of creature born, you know, deep under the sea. There There are certain types of creatures that can survive at the very lowest levels of ocean depths where the... The amount of pressure in the ocean is so high. And so you get very particular types of creatures. And they're not maybe the most sophisticated looking types of creatures, but they're very sort of hardy creatures. But as that kind of pressure releases, as things get cheaper on blockchains, you can get more sophisticated sort of economic organisms, if you like, more
0: sophisticated pieces of software. Interesting comparison to Uniswap and how it was bred of a need for simplicity at a time when the the tech wasn't quite there. As the leader of geometry, your job is to look into the future and stay ahead of trends and make sure that your team is conducting research on where the most bleeding-edge tech is going. With your crystal ball, where are you steering the ship and to ensure that geometry is always looking to what blockchain and crypto technology needs looking past zk which has now really become a, a core component of blockchain infrastructure what is the next big leap forward that we should be anticipating
1: so it's something that people are starting to work on now is this and i don't want to sound like one of those people that sort of suddenly has seen AI bolt from the stables and suddenly that's all I can all I can make about. But it, it, AI does ring, does usher in a couple of interesting opportunities, both from the research side and also from the investment standpoint. So first of all, I think AI has just made crypto investable. I think it's also made AI investable, but it's certainly made, in my view, crypto investable because crypto for a long time. I heard of one investor describe the view of crypto as a very as a very gothic view. You, know, you really have to believe a lot of stuff is going to go wrong for, for crypto to be sort of universally relevant, rather than just sort of staying in lane and just handling these kind of macro assets, right? And I think AI might be the calling. That might be the answer, is you now have these programs that get to decide not just how they execute, but when or whether they execute. This means that the, the storage on which we all rely for an account of our history, things like you know, files, pieces of work you've done, all of that stuff, is sort of increasingly potentially mutable. And so the role of crypto as a computational back-end for the world, for the new internet, is increasingly important. That level of redundancy and verification that it offers is incredibly important. So that's kind of one thing to say. From a research standpoint, this is quite interesting. because And it means that, by the way, the course of research that will interest geometry will remain thematically quite similar for at least the next 12 months, which is that Zero launch proofs now need to get a lot, 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 lot faster. So if you're now going to have a world where the internet needs to be increasingly verified, that means that when people run artificial intelligence or let's say sort of at a low level, sort of of machine learning models, and increasingly if the world is moving from this sort of compiled computation environment where you have all programs are hard-coded by an engineer and they all go down into this instruction set, And instead, increasingly, the utilities that we're using online are more kind of machine learning generated. They're sort of more intuitive in that sense. Intuitive compute versus maybe sort of classical compute. It's going to be very important to know that they were executed correctly when they are operating on your state. If you think blockchain state right now, yes, your assets in the long run, this could be everything that you are storing, everything you're doing on the internet in the long run backed up essentially sort of executed on this sort of decentralized network so this means Sekei okay, proofs need to get a lot faster these these machine learning models are enormous and so whereas before what we needed to be able to do was do a uniswap, well like really simple Unisol, x times y it needs a really simple equation and now you've got to verify whether an enormous model billions or trillions of parameters of numbers flowing all over so Sekei okay, have to get a lot faster. So that's where these two worlds, machine learning, and crypto, may very well fly and produces a requirement for massive improvements in the proving system we've all been working with, way I
0: I like to think of this end user, and who the two different primary groups are. There's the average consumer. Yep, and then there's corporates. Corporates, institutions, businesses, etc. Yep. Why is ZK, verification, security, privacy, why is that so important to that second cohort, the, the businesses, the companies, so that right. they can start getting more involved on-chain?
1: Right. Well, I first of all, I think the first beneficiaries are not on-chain. So you these zero knowledge proofs are massively important off-chain. Like, on-chain basically just means I'm recording the order in which transactions happened. But it might be that it's really important for you to check that a, a computation happened, but you're not on-chain. Here's a great example. So you, you've always, as a, as a basic input to this, you've always got to look for where is the cost of not knowing that a, a machine learning model was executed massively costly? Where is it, either got a huge financial cost or a compliance cost or something, right? Is That's where you've got to be staring to work out where to apply this technology. So a really good example is medtech. So increasingly, we're going to see, for example, oncology. So people sort of, you know, doctors, until now, it's been doctors stare at a scan, try to work out, is there a tumour, is, is there a medical problem with this person? And increasingly, the move will be towards AI, or sort of machine learning, I right? see, so you actually run some model, and it's able to detect all these extra features that the human eye is not able to detect from the input data. So, a great example of this technology would be like, yeah, can you imagine the medical, the sort of the the, sort of the, the indemnity breach that you would have if you couldn't prove a paper trace and maybe someone had just failed to run the correct model, the, the authorised model that is the one that is known to be the best at detecting cancers, for example, would be monumental. So, a great example of proving that you executed a machine learning model would be oncology and so accompanying your scan wherever it goes would be this proof that says the best in class learning algorithm detecting cancer here's an, a succinct proof that you can check to make sure that the model actually ran that's a that's a really good example of where sort of you know, the cost of producing the proof is not that high compared with the massive cost of not having a paper trail that proves that you did the thing that was medically the correct thing to do using, using early versions of the AI or ML.
0: So I think it's kind of your job helping steer these very technical teams, think about that end user. Likely the oncologist has deep knowledge of oncology, but right. may know nothing about crypto or zero knowledge proofs. And so that user experience, like the the complexity of the crypto and the mathematics needs to be abstracted to the background. Given the very technical nature of these topics, how can these teams think about the UX? And is that where geometry and other investors could step in and really try and drive an emphasis on that topic indeed i mean the first thing to say here
1: is that as the cryptography team you are probably not going to be a very good person to sell directly to medical specialists so you're going to need really to think about platformizing yourself so what you should really be doing is providing a computation service some kind of sdk whatever some sort of api service and what it does is, and oh no, there's a whole lot of privacy issues here, so you, you've, you probably need the, the proof to be run sort of locally near the client so they're not broadcasting all their, all their information. But you probably, your job is to build a great engineering experience that just allows the person building the model to sort of compile the model into a proof and create that proof, right? So to, you've got to team. your Team one is we're a med tech company. We're trying to create a more reliable way of detecting cancer. Who is, who, who is their customer? Their customer is you know, the, the medical profession, so some hospital or whatever, National Health Service in the UK, whatever it might be. And they are onward paying for some much more general platform whose job it is to create the certificate. So, you know, a kind of similar example would be back when we were all building these early websites and you know that little lock in the corner of your screen when you're on your browser, that's an SSL certificate, right? You did not want website builders having to build their own self-stifted. Also, there were standards that were required to make sure that, that a server and a client could interact with one another. So you needed that provided by some B2B business. It's that B2B business that is really the sort of company that geometry would fund. In other words, they are building this ZK certification for all these applications that can't go wrong. And they make it, as you say, really easy for those engineering teams. So those engineering teams, they're probably product specialists. They probably do know their own market quite well. They know the medical profession, the defense profession. There's a whole load of professions that this could ultimately serve, as well as on-chain applications. And they are interfacing with those end users. And they simply have as an input this thing that makes all the cryptography complication go away from them. And so, yeah, you're basically talking about an engineering tool. But it's a very powerful engineering tool, partly because the amount of R&D left make this stuff more and more and more and more powerful it's sort of almost limitless and so there's a kind of great long-run business in being one of those KP providers
0: so i wanted to save some time here to hear about some of the projects that geometry has backed and why you're excited about them and what they offer to the world so maybe we could do two examples here of interesting projects that you're excited to to share with the audience.
1: Yeah, so kind of an interesting pairing that looks at the world in two different ways is sort of scroll the risk zero, both of whom we were amongst the very earliest investors in. So as you mentioned scroll earlier, the thing's okay EVM. So this is addressing the idea that maybe EVM is JavaScript and maybe therefore it has got network effects and because of the first group of people use it, the second wave of people use it, and the third wave of people use it, so everyone's gonna be writing Solidity code for a long time. And these are a very strong argument to say that is very likely to be true for a long period of time. Risk zero comes in and says, well, we think there's also an untapped group of people who have been writing in much more formal languages for a long time, are not used to the weirdnesses of, the, of, 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 of Ethereum, and, but they do know all these other languages. And these things all compile down into a particular architecture. So they're going after, really, the untapped Web 2 engineers who just want to write programs for this new internet, but they don't want to learn a new language. So that's quite an interesting pairing. These companies are basically sort of operate at the same layer, they're sort of, they're basically scaling companies, they're sort of operating at the sort of the layer 2 level, but they're taking very different views of the world, what do engineers want. And probably the answer is both. There's probably a whole group of engineers who are hooked on Ethereum, and that trend will continue. But there's also a lot of people who prefer to use more formal languages, C++ Rust, but these sort of things that are much more formal, or that they've just sort of used sort of elsewhere for 20 years, and they want to come in to, to, to build on Ethereum, and so they can do that too. So that's a kind of interesting pair of companies. Again, the question for them is going to be, what is their business model? it might be something around coordinating computation so a little bit like sort of uber on the street their orchestration job is to make sure that there is always computation available to 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 sort of basically create the proofs that allows ethereum to sort of ingest these programs so that's kind of one, one good example as if maybe a company that can sort of feed off both of those and capture value is a company like Ingnium, so where they're building dedicated hardware and the betting there is Just as we had the GPU of phones, we're going to have this ZPU uh, thing which just focuses on making zero knowledge proofs faster. So they're they're sort of essentially an input to both of those companies and to many more as well. I think that probably sort of neatly encapsulates how we are trying to sort of find people who can extract value around the edges of these protocols, whose main job is going to be to sort of make the bad stuff go away. And maybe it's sort of just one point of historical comparison. It's, a, again, a very hackneyed comparison. We've seen these kinds of businesses in the past where there is a protocol and there is a trustful business, right? And so, you know, Mongo is the one that everyone likes to use. So Mongo has this sort of open, open source sort of database. It's a standard. Well, that could be very like the, the Layer 2 protocol, right? It's a standard. It's a thing you know can't go wrong. But then you need these trustful providers, to provide the computation that makes sure your database doesn't go away, and that's obviously what Mongo does. There could be similar analogies at layer two. So there's the kind of the trust less business. That's the protocol that makes sure nothing goes wrong. And then the sort of the trustful business, which is the provision of computational resources to that protocol. So that's maybe a sort of good illustration of how we see sort of value being extracted in the long run.
0: I find it interesting how your You have one central thesis, but then you're backing projects that are approaching that thesis in different directions. And they could both be correct, but just serve a different demographic group. It's almost like being LVMH and knowing that this type of luxury product serves this type of customer and this luxury product may serve a different type of customer without having any judgment on what luxury is.
1: Precisely. And we also sit above, just don't know long run which direction the cash flow is going. I actually had, there's a great podcast called Another Podcast by... Another, new,
0: not as great, but still great podcast.
1: Not as great as this one, but it is it is also very good. And it covers a totally different topic, by the way. And a, a guy called Benedict Evans, who I'm sure plenty of your listeners have, have come across, who was and recent for a while, and he gave a great example of, and I didn't know this anecdote, but of the early sort of radio broadcasters. And they had no idea how to make money. And apparently, the idea of advertising was at that point invisible to them. Presumably, they had the sense that unless the, ab- the advertisement is sort of visual and is sort of entertaining and visually arresting, you can't do ad- advertised advertising. I'm not sure what it was. But they had this idea that the cash flow at that time was only really happening in the shop where people were buying their transistor radios or whatever their wireless sets. And so their thesis in the early days was we monetize by recharging the radio manufacturers for a cut of the profits they're making off the end user. And that's a sort of great example, of course, that's precisely the opposite way that the cash flows ended up flowing. I think that same level of uncertainty really accords to to, to crypto, to Web3 right now. And that's why we are trying as much as possible to sort of to get to sort of economic coverage of all the people who might end up being trustful providers around these otherwise trustless networks as a way to make sure that we're we're going to return value to to investors
0: what is invisible to the majority of founders and crypto investors out there that is clear as day to you and geometry the first is maybe a
1: a sort of a negative, or at least a check against our assumptions, which is, I think the value extraction case for layer twos is extremely unclear at the protocol level, and I need to emphasize that. doesn't mean you can't build huge businesses around it, and a lot of these layer two companies can. But the reason is that the impulse to make money does not sit particularly well with the impulse to stop bad things from happening for the user. So there's a the first thing I think is going to happen in the long run is in layer twos, everyone is going to be staking ETH. In other words, the the, the security for these layer twos will come probably from a more canonical asset, one that's better expressing security, as better giving security, it gives security more cheaply than a native token. So I think therefore there is a big question of whether the tokens themselves can value extract. Number one. Number two, and I think I have said it a sort of higher. the the program, but I really think that AI has much or at least as much consequence for the investability of crypto as it does the investability of AI. With AI, it's very hard because either you've invested in a foundation model, which looks like it's in a very powerful position, but again, cash flow is not particularly clear, or you invest in an application where everything comes down to the fine tuning and probably those applications can monetize But are they actually always going to be at the behest of whoever built their foundation model? That's a big open question. Whereas AI has made computational systems highly mutable, highly at risk. Think of all your bank statements. I mean, I don't want to cause too much of a scare, but sort of, you know, every piece of data that you think is hard historical evidence that tells you where your assets are, what they are, is increasingly mutable and open to everything from cyber attack through to... Now, this is a very sort of gruesome view of the world but I think it's an elevated risk that AI can now start to operate on computational systems in much more intuitive ways and mean that our collective record of history is much flimsier and I think that means the crypto substance is now highly investable it's a highly valuable asset to have your assets and all of your computational state recorded in this much more immutable much harder substance that the crypto provides so I think if you want to invested in the virtues of AI, you need to at least be taking as hard a stare of crypto as
0: AI itself. I think that's your spicy take within crypto, but I'm going to ask the the same question. What is your spiciest take outside of crypto? What do you got?
1: Well, I can now say it because it's been very, it's been, I just don't understand. It's been so trendy to disavow the role of virtual reality. And in particular, I feel a lot of scorn has been poured on Zuckerberg for his VR output so far. I don't know how many people these people actually tried it. It's actually really good for the, the kinds of businesses that are now being created in very dispersed environments. So I mean, Geometry actually has used this quite regularly in the past for, we need a lecture room. We have 10 people all around the world, all in different cities. How do you do a whiteboarding session with those people? And VR was a great answer to that they have completely eliminated the latency yeah, you get slight headaches yeah okay if you take a snapshot of what you see on the screen it doesn't look immediately arresting versus you know, the output of mid-journey or something that's right but the actual work that Facebook has done to get the experience so good to get the sort of the acoustic replication so good the user experience of sort of you know actually writing on a whiteboard with a hand flailing in midair amazing I actually do think that this is the future of work and I don't think it's so very far away and there are a lot of companies that have been built up in highly dispersed formats because of COVID. It's very natural. It's suddenly very natural. You notice this actually in the portfolio sort of two, three years ago. The idea of starting a company with a co-founder who's in a different country was unthinkable. Now it's the default in a lot of settings. And so this means that the, sort of the real estate of a virtual environment is highly, highly, highly valuable. Now what that then does to sort of all kinds of asset classes I don't know, does it mean we all will end up going to the countryside because we have much less use for cities because we have, cities have much less of social draw, or does it actually mean the flip side? We're much less sensitive to constrained space and so actually we're very happy to live in highly built up environments because we don't need the outside space because we can just sort of push the wall open and and fly out the window anytime we like in our VR. I have no idea I think this is going to have some very interesting implications for classical real estate and other assets too, particularly of commercial real estate. But I think VR is going to be foundationally important to our lives when we're spending all our time. And if I just think the people who are disavowing it right now, it's, you know, there was a great hype cycle. Now people's excitement has gone. It's very classic. But I really think that that is one of the things that's going to be going to imminently influence all of our working lives and all of our social lives too.
0: I'm in New York City right now and just looking out at the amount of commercial real estate there is in so many of these big you know, 10 story plus buildings they must be vacant With it's just cheaper for the companies to allow people to work remotely and making use of an at home office so I don't know what that means to the space but There will have to be new use cases developed in order for that property not to be totally wasted. So I love the fact that Geometry's team is leveraging VR to to coordinate a global organization. I think you guys are in 7 or 10 countries. So the fact you're all able to congregate in a virtual room that has more depth to it than Zoom, I think is awesome.
1: Uh, Yes, you think of the the Darwinian chances of survival of a company that has to hire only geographically versus the chances of a company that can hire entirely globally. And the only prior constraint was, how do I put all these people in a room so that their communications don't get degraded by being split up and not having good communications? If actually, ultimately, VR fixes that, then yes. To me, I mean, it's easy to cycle this forward too fast, but I think it entirely replaces the role of the commercial office totally replaces it. And so, yes, I must admit, I would be be interested to see what, I guess all that real estate gets, what repurposed as residential. And then the big question is, do people want that? Or do they want to actually move out into the country because they can get all of their sort of, much of their meaningful social interaction through VR? I I have no idea how that's gonna play out. but
0: It'll certainly be interesting to monitor. I think we've got some time now, Tom this is awesome where can people learn more about you and geometry yes we have a website
1: www.geometry.xyz i will say'm still training myself to say that we have on there all kinds of things sort of list of our portfolio a notebook a health warning it is very technical but there are some sort of more digestible non non-technical topics on there as well but it's where we put a lot of our research and otherwise yeah it could be by email and also on, on 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 Twitter as well. We have a have a an increasingly popular Twitter account that started with quite a technical audience, but definitely definitely broadening now.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today's show. This was a fantastic episode, and for for teaching everyone about these deeply technical topics. And I look forward to watching you and Geometry succeed and going forward, staying at the cutting edge. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Seniors Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Seniors Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter, at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.